Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. Well, Chris, it's our final episode of the year, so I want to wish everyone a safe and happy holiday season. I'm your co-host, Yingyi An Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Yingyi is joined by Chris Joy. I'm Coolabar's uh, CIO and also a Portfolio Manager here. So today we'll be covering off on an update on financial markets, uh, discuss the welcoming of Pinnacle to our Coolabar family, the human shortcomings of the world's greatest investor, Renaissance Technologies, Jim Simons, the battle between Phil Lowe and Josh Frydenberg over fiscal policy, the Westpac AML saga and the price of forcing banks to become crime fighters, and the revolution about to hit conflicted financial advice. So I want to start off by saying that we are absolutely delighted to announce that Pinnacle Investment Management has joined the Coolabar Capital Investments family. The ASX-listed Pinnacle, which has approximately $60 billion in FUM, including Coolabar Capital, has acquired the Bennett family's minority stake in CCI, or Coolabar Capital, and will support the ongoing development of CCI's unique active credit investment capability. Pinnacle has a suite of world-class institutional managers and an outstanding operational compliance, governance and risk management infrastructure, which CCI will doubtless benefit from. CCI is 75% owned and controlled by its investment team, which will remain the case. Most of the 21 executives, including our four portfolio managers and nine analysts, are shareholders in the business. A specialist in the generation of active credit alpha, CCI currently runs more than $3.3 billion in committed and invested capital across four funds and numerous institutional mandates. Pinnacle now has minority shareholdings in 14 different fund managers, including CCI, with its $60 billion in FUM distributed across both the institutional, retail and global markets. This includes leading managers like Metrics, Plato, Solaris, Firetrail, Resolution, Antipodes, and Hyperion. Importantly, CCI's very strong long-term relationship with the Bennett family will only grow as AMB has committed to maintaining its significant investments across our strategies. Finally, we're very excited about further expanding our differentiated internal investment infrastructure and expect to add a number of executives to both our portfolio manager and analyst teams in the next six months. So Chris, why don't you give us a quick market wrap? Yeah, sure, Yingers. Um, so we've had some pretty good uh, resolution on the geopolitical front. We've had a phase one trade deal, basically a fairly meaningless deal, but uh, certainly an event that seems to have given markets the certainty they wanted and vis-a-vis the potential risk of an escalation in trade tensions between the US and China. So that's been pretty positive. We've also had um, a resounding um, Bojo victory in the UK that um, should pave the way for an orderly Brexit, uh, which is a positive. And then finally, in Hong Kong, we've had the uh, successful completion of the local council elections uh, in which the Democratic parties performed very, very well. And there seems to have been a dramatic uh, reduction in the number of uh, public disturbances and violent protests. Um, At the time of recording, 
So right now it's the 16th of December. We've also just had um, the government's uh, MIEFA or mid-year budget update released. And they're still forecasting a slightly smaller $5 billion surplus this financial year, down from about seven. So that's pretty positive. Um, But it's also clear that they don't have much space in fiscal policy uh, to provide uh, a lot of economic stimulus if they're gonna retain their fidelity to the delivery of surpluses. So that's consistent with our view that monetary policy still has a lot more work to do if we can't get the jobless rate down to the four to four and a half Nairu. In terms of actual market returns, December's been pretty good, but let's start with November. Uh, In November, the floating rate note index was up 0.17% quite a solid month compared to the cash rate. So the RBA cash rate returned just 0.06% and the bank bill index uh, did 0.08%. The hybrid market was up about 0.09% in the month, which is a fairly modest outcome for hybrids. And it seems that it's still dealing with the indigestion associated with the settlement of the $1.6 billion CBA hybrid uh, in November, and also the settlement of the $925 million KKR leveraged junk bond listed investment company. On that, it is interesting that that KKR LIT is the first one that we've seen trade below uh, net tangible assets. It was down around, I think, three, possibly more, 4% below NTA. It's quite common for equity LITs to trade below NTA. I think roughly 80% of all equity LITs are trading below net tangible assets, but we've not yet seen this with the high yield or debt LITs. It's kind of trading now back um, around NTA. That was interesting, and there is certainly a sense when you speak to brokers and advisors that the huge tsunami of LITs is putting pressure on the sector, um, whereby new deals are starting to trade quite poorly. We saw, uh, for example, the new VG8 Global Equities LIT that listed trade as much as 9 to 10% below NTA within the first month of it IPOing on the ASX. So let's then now turn to quickly talk about um, the year-to-date returns. Actually, before I do, I've got to mention uh, fixed rate bonds. So the composite bond index, um, which is fixed rate, compared to the floating rate FRN index, um, it did uh, particularly well in November, up 82 basis points, or 0.82%. So uh, in contrast to um, recent months, the reduction in long-term interest rates actually fueled fixed rate bond returns. In our active composite bond strategy, <coughs> we were able to um, significantly outperform the index uh, in November. Pre-fees were up 0.97% compared to the index's 0.82%. We'll talk more about the uh, year-to-date returns and the 12-month returns. Well, I can actually talk about the 12-month returns now. I would just stress again that this active composite bond strategy that we run is an institutional product. It's not available to retail investors and our clients have confidential fee terms, so we can't actually quote the net numbers. But over the last 12 months, our active composite bond strategy has returned 14.7% versus the composite bond index's 10.7%, again, pre-fees, because it's not available to retail investors. So let's now turn to look at the uh, year-to-date returns. Yeah, so in the first 11 months of the year, the RBA cash rate has annualized at 1.20%. Obviously, the RBA reducing the cash rate has hurt returns uh, to cash. The Osborne floating rate 
note index is actually done pretty well. It's annualized uh, return for that first 11 month period. Uh, this is through the end of November, obviously, has been 3.00%, uh, a strong outcome. The fixed rate bond market has also done well, uh, all things considered. Um, it's actually annualizing at 9.93%. This is the composite bond index. Um, by way of comparison, our active composite bond strategy is done 14.5 versus that 9.93 pre fees for the reasons previously described. Uh, the hybrid market has also um, given a pretty good uh, outcome with an, a 6.50% percent pre fees return to the ASX hybrid market over the first circa 11 months, or the first 11 months precisely, I should say. Just by way of comparison, our long short credit fund, which is also floating rate like the FRN index, which did three in the hybrid market, which did 6.5. Um, by floating rate, we mean it has, has no interest rate duration risk. So different to our active composite bond strategy. Net of fees that returned 7.3% on the same basis over the same period that we just described. Uh, and then our cash plus our mainstay cash plus strategies have also done pretty well over this period. So year to date, annualized uh, over the first 11 months our smarter money higher income product uh, pre-fees has done about four and a half post fees about three and a half we run two cash plus strategies smarter money active cash and smarter money higher income the standout performer i think in the year to date has really been the equity market where the Aussie share market equities plus dividends has returned a pretty incredible 26.5% or 29.24% annualised over the first 11 months of the year. Just some other interesting numbers that might be worth reflecting on. Uh, the hedge fund research credit hedge fund index has only done 5.9 annualised over this uh, same period. I'm just trying to see if there's anything else. Retail term deposits have done 1.6. The average retail bonus saver accounts done 1.8. Uh, the AAA beta shares um, ETF products done 1.7 annualized for the first 11 months of the year. Well, it's almost 12 months. I think that's basically it. So uh, we come into 2020 pretty positively and constructively in terms of our views on markets. You know, Brexit hopefully will be resolved in January uh, finally, uh, which is a big event risk that's being taken off the table. It looks like the trade um, dramas will uh, fade into 2020 until we get the US presidential election out of the way in November. And uh, there is obviously hope for more stability in the Asian region and in Hong Kong particularly as we uh, head into the new year. So I'd reiterate uh, Yinger's comments about wishing everyone well, having a great break, and enjoying the holiday season. Please do go visit the Coolabar Capital Search and Rescue Drone website. It's on YouTube. So if you go to Coolabar Capital Drone, uh, if you Google that, um, you'll see our, uh, our live video feed and uh, recorded feeds from the Search and Rescue Drone trying to prevent shark attacks. I will also reveal for the first time, and this is a very, very important PSA or public safety announcement, that Coolabar Capital is in the process of acquiring a search and rescue submersible drone. It's a sub submarine or submersible underwater vehicle um, will be able to travel to depths of 150 metres. Um, it does have a remotely controlled arm that will allow us to feed great white sharks directly. Um, no more seriously, uh, it's a pretty amazing beast of a, a drone. It has six thrusters. 
can travel at high speed, as I mentioned, can go to depths of 150 metres. Um, so when we do identify a great white shark, we will be um, from uh, our eyes in the sky, so from the Mavic 2 Enterprise drone, we will then be coordinating with our submersible drone to try and go and um, engage with that beast. Wow, Chris, that is absolutely incredible. And I actually had no idea that you were doing this. So moving on, genuinely impressive investment terms are hard for professionals to find. The last that made an impression on us was Black Edge by Sheila Kalatka, documenting the rise, fall and recovery of the tape-reading savant Stevie Cohen, who was the inspiration for Bobby Axelrod in the hit TV series Billions. The most elusive media target in markets has been the chain-smoking billionaire mathematician James Simons, the 21st richest man in the world, according to Forbes, with a cool US $22 billion and counting. After years of sleuthing, journalist Gregory Zuckerman's new book, The Man Who Solved the Market, unravels the mystery inside a riddle that is the former Cold War codebreaker. Executing up to 300,000 short-term trades per day, Simons has gradually developed the greatest investment track record in history. Between 1988 and 2018, Simons Renaissance Technologies, otherwise known as Rentec to insiders, returned 66% annually before fees in its flagship medallion fund, or 39% after enormous 5% annual management fees and 36% performance fees. There has been only one negative year in 1989 when Rentec lost 4%. In 2008, Simons made a staggering 82.4% net of fees, even more than the stunning 74% he returned in the year preceding it. After all his hefty charges, the 81-year-old former maths professor has effectively doubled Warren Buffett's returns since 1988 and done 3.3 times better than his much higher profile hedge fund billionaire peer Ray Dalio. Most interestingly, Simons has achieved these almost too good to be true results using a systematic or automated computer-driven trading style that is meant to be devoid of human interference and bias. Yet after 400 plus interviews with more than 30 current and former Rentec employees and 10 hours interrogating Simons himself, Zuckerman reveals that this picture-perfect track record is not what it seems. It turns out that Rentec was consistently plagued by very human trials and tribulations. Yeah, Yingers, this is a fantastic lesson for us all. Great case study. Um, and the first lesson I got from it was just how hard it was for Summers to crack the code, so to speak, and create a successful business, as we all know. Hindsight bias makes him look like an exponential sensation since he launched Rentec's medallion fund. <clears throat> in 1988. But the truth was that Simons was struggling in obscurity for an entire decade after leaving academia at the age of 40, you know, relatively late in life, to take this improbable shot at outwitting the collective wisdom of global markets. So obviously, it's an you know, existential battle that we're also engaged in every day, Yingers, here at Coolabar. Uh, he launched his first hedge fund called Limroy under the firm name Monometrics in 1978, uh, and he recruited two outstanding mathematicians, Lenny Baum and James Axe, no relation to Axe from Billions, uh, to join him one year later. And while both became partners, they also quit each uh, following dramas. 
Bourne was the first to go in 84 after losing 40% of the money he was managing. Following 10 years of patchy performance that forced the quants to ditch their vision of developing an automated trading system for a much simpler judgment-based discretionary macro method, Limroy, so Simon's first funds management venture, was actually shuttered in 88. Uh, clients also had concerns uh, that Simons was commingling some middling uh, venture capital investments in the Limroy portfolio. Simons and Axe replaced Limroy with a now iconic medallion fund, immodestly named after both of their respective maths prizes. And the plan was to concentrate on systematic trading given innovations in computer processing power. But in 1989 was a disaster with Medallion down 30% at one juncture, compelling Simons to demand that Axe cease all trading, uh, which triggered a legal battle between the partners. And within months, Axe had sold his stake in Rentec to a new hire, uh, the computer scientist Elwyn Burlerkamp. And only a year later, however, Burlerkamp also bailed out of the business because he couldn't handle, uh, it is reported, Simons's pestering style, sounds like me, uh, prompting one employee to worry that the founder would commit suicide. And it'd be actually 15 long years before Simons was managing more than US $100 million. Uh, so it's definitely not the fairy tale story that you know we all previously presumed. And personal problems would persist in wreaking havoc on Simons throughout Rentec's tumultuous trajectory. Presumably, this was precipitated by the challenge inherent in managing exceptional human talent. Longtime Rentec CEO, the computer scientist Robert Brown, who reportedly sleeps in his office has a notoriously caustic relationship with his staff that borders, I think, on bullying um, based on Zuckerman's account. Brown's co-CEO for much of the 1990s, Bob Mercer, who was a fellow coder from IBM, uh, has also attracted intense criticism for his extreme right-wing views, including allegations of racial racial prejudice, uh, and also for the crucial role he played in both uh, the British Brexit campaign uh, and the election of Donald Trump. Mercer was basically Trump's key financial backer and uh, also uh, helped select all of Trump's key uh, appointees in his campaign office. Simon sacked Mercer in 2017 as a result of internal dissent that could have reportedly uh, have led to mass staff exodus. There's also been heated litigation between Rentec and former employees who allegedly stole intellectual property and at times a toxic corporate culture with uh, different fiefdoms warring for profits. The accumulated animus burst into the public domain in 2017 when the key software architect for Rentec's trading execution systems, systems, a guy called David Magerman, sensationally gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal airing a dispute with his boss, um, co-CEO at the time, Bob Mercer, including claims he called him a white supremacist. And Magerman told the journal that, quote, his views show contempt for the social safety net that he doesn't need, but Americans do. And then he continued, quote, now he's using the money I helped him make to implement his worldview that government should be shrunk down to the size of a pinhead, end quote. 
Another insight is Simon's uh, enduring struggle to go systematic, which is also pretty fascinating. He tried and failed during the 1970s and 1980s, ultimately reverting to an intuitive decision-making style that resembles most other hedge fund managers. It was only with the breakthroughs in microchips, data storage, and the advent of the internet in the 1990s that Rentec was able to establish a viable systematic strategy. Yet much to the chagrin of his quants, Simon's himself remained stubbornly skeptical of a perpetually automated approach, personally intervening to override Rentex models during the global financial crisis and as recently as December last year. This was born out of a visceral understanding of the difficulty models have processing sudden regime changes in asset pricing and the knowledge that there's always the non-diversifiable risk that there are residual errors in the code. And here it's interesting to note that coding errors propagated a significant losing streak in Rentec's equity strategy in 1995. And when the long tech boom during the 1990s suddenly shifted into the savage tech wreck in 2000, Rentec's momentum-based systems couldn't cope, and they torched about US $260 million in just three days, or total losses over those three days of about 16% of their portfolio. Once the quants identified that the models were broken and modified them accordingly, I guess, yeah, in Medallion, I think, recovered quite quickly. And from memory, they ended up about 74% after fees in that same year. Uh, another example of uh, these dramas was during the synchronized quant quake in August 2007. And Medallion lost more than $1 billion or 20% of its value in a single week. Another longer-term fund that Rentec had launched called RIEF uh, smoked $3 billion uh, in that week. It transpired that around one quarter of all Rentex trades were being emulated by peers and steamrolling the recommendations of his team, Simons overrode the model's desire to keep buying and start unilaterally or started unilaterally uh, liquidating. And he was quoted by Zuckerman saying, at the time, our job is to survive uh, and if we're wrong, we can always add to positions later. So it was pretty interesting, Yingers. Yeah, Chris, and I also found it interesting that Rentec has found its greatest success exploiting short-term rather than long-term anomalies. That makes perfect sense given it is much easier to predict what will happen over hours, days and weeks than months or years. You know, volatility grows with the square root of time. Having said that, its win ratio is only just north of 50% and its enormous returns are a function of gargantuan leverage combined with massive trading volume on a global scale. And the impressive monthly return series conceals large losses and variability on a trade-by-trade basis. While one lesson from this tale might be that markets are inefficient, with the corollary that active managers can generate alpha, perhaps the superior insight is that it is bloody hard work identifying and capitalising on those anomalies. Now, Chris, let's turn over to the battle between Phil Lowe and Josh Frydenberg over fiscal policy. And there is a case that the government is losing control of its otherwise impressive fiscal policy legacy as the RBA seeks to deflect blame for its failure to hit its legislated inflation and employment targets. This is emerging as one of the key tests of Treasurer Joshua Frydenberg's political career. Does he possess the fortitude and decision-making fidelity that have become hallmarks of Scott Morrison's astonishing success? The latest round of efforts to pressure the government to drop its budget surplus and bail monetary policy out 
predictably started with the RBA governor, Phil Lowe's speech on QE, or quantitative easing, in which he laid the foundations for a sustained attack on Morrison and Frydenberg's parsimony. Rolling out QE might, quote, create an inaction bias by other policymakers, including the fiscal authorities that could lead to an over-reliance on monetary policy, low warned, foxing ahead of the government's May budget. If there was any doubt as to what Lowe was signalling to his economics and media acolytes, he doubled down, imploring that, quote, we need to remember that monetary policy cannot drive longer-term growth and that there are other arms of public policy that can sustainably promote both investment and growth. Sharp jab to Frydenberg's bloodied nose. In the Q&A after the speech, Lowe dusted the treasurer up again, arguing that before he is forced into doing QE, he would hope that other arms of policy would be doing something as well. It would be all arms to the wheel, wouldn't it? Answering this rhetorical question, the Martin Place Mandarin responded, it should be whether that happens or not, with the implication that that perhaps it might not be at present. Lowe's parting words were akin to verbal ground and pound. To quote, Remember, monetary policy is not the solution to every problem. There are other fiscal solutions that might be more attractive or might not. I don't know. But of course he does. Lowe knows exactly what he is doing, unleashing the dogs of war on Canberra's fiscal felines. The message is that monetary policy is not to blame for the RBA failing to deliver inflation within its target band and a jobless rate consistent with full employment since Lowe was a first appointed governor three years ago. I agree, Yingers. Um, there's no doubt that Lowe's shifted the crosshair smack bang onto Frydenberg's increasingly Spartan dome. Unsurprisingly, uh, Lowe's many disciples immediately pulled the trigger on his behalf. We saw the Sydney Morning Herald opine, uh, specifically Ross Gittins, that the, quote, super sharp low is, quote, one of the smartest economists in the land, who has to sadly contend with a, quote, willful, willful prime minister whose confidence far exceeds his comprehension. <coughs> That's what you say when you get the federal election totally and utterly wrong, as Gittins did. The economics editor uh, also explained to his readers that, quote, Scott Morrison, as we know, is refusing to do what Lowe, with the support of the international agencies and most of our economists, have been begging him to do, use his budget to come to the rescue of monetary policy. Now, I could not have put that better myself. But why does Lowe need to be rescued in the first place? I think that's the key question. On the same day, uh, the former RBA deputy governor, Stephen Grenville, wrote in the AFR that Morrison should Drop his, drop his, quote, budget, budget surplus fetish and ignore S&P's threat to downgrade Australia's AAA rating if he does so because the economy is, quote, growing just a little too slowly to get unemployment down to its full employment level or to push inflation up to the RBA target. So yet another call to ballot the RBA uh, for failing to meet its legislative objectives. And the funny thing is that, you know, Grenville's saying quite explicitly don't worry about the surplus, don't worry about the fiscal space that that creates for real emergencies. And don't worry about the AAA rating that um, is absolutely instrumental in determining the cost of funding for both the government, for banks and all households. But just to you know, meet a theoretical full employment target and a theoretical price stability target, we should move heaven and earth to bail the RBA out. The AFR's senior writer John Kehoe echoed 
these pleas a few days later, and he exclaimed that, quote, the economy is crying out for extra budget support. Keogh then lent on the high-profile former RBA economist Paul Bloxon, who um, you know is obviously a part of the Economist crew that are you know always keen to maintain uh, happy relations with the RBA. And, and Bloxham had said that quote, if the unemployment rate is to fall and inflation is to eventually get back to target, more policy stimulus is likely to be needed. Of course, Bloxham, Bloxham clarified that um, quote, ideally this support would come from the fiscal side. This inversion is remarkable and predictable. The RBA demands absolute independence and obedience from Canberra. Politicians are reflexively criticised if they express the slightest opinion on monetary policy. Yet the RBA feels emphatically free to publicly shame the government's fiscal policy posture. And I think in their typically masterful management of the media and the economics community, predicated, of course, on that implicit contract that if you do not criticise them, the RBA will furnish off-the-record insights that can make or break careers. The RBA have somehow managed to convince everyone that Morrison and Frydenberg are responsible for their own bloopers. A critical strategic area here was when the government got the yips on what was meant to be a hardened statement on the conduct of monetary policy. They had led everyone to believe that the RBA would be forced to write to the Treasurer each year and explain whether it had fulfilled its policy mandate, as the Bank of England does in the UK. Members of government, um, I believe, expressed two key concerns with this route. The first was that the RBA's three rate cuts in 2019 were actually undermining confidence. They worried that holding the RBA to annual account would increase the probability of future cuts and indeed quantitative easing, which would exacerbate this anxiety, uh, that is the community anxiety. It is doubtless true that in the very short term, the public had some pause um, or had taken some pause given how quickly the RBA had swung from predicting the next move in interest rates was up to slashing rates months later. Yet contrary to the suggestion that monetary policy has run its course, the empirical fact is that it remains um, immensely potent. And we've seen the value of Australian households' most important asset, that is their home, soar, and this will inevitably feed back into sentiment, investment and growth. And what we know of the last time the RBA did quantitative easing during the global financial crisis is that Main Street was completely oblivious to its passing. So I don't think you know the spectre of doing QE is necessarily going to you know, fully destabilise uh, public confidence, um, depending on how it's rolled out. Another fear that the government had was that the RBA would use its annual letter to um, criticise fiscal policy and hence the government for its own blunders. But this should not be logically possible given that fiscal policy settings are explicitly accounted for in the RBA's macroeconomic models. It would be like the former tennis player uh, Frydenberg blaming the tension of his racket's strings uh, for an unforced error after his stringer had informed him of the exact poundage of that racket. Uh, rare support for the government and calls for the RBA to pull its head in have interestingly come from a pretty unusual source, and that is Prime Minister Julia Gillard's former economic advisor Stephen uh, Kukulis, uh, aka the Kook, who historically um, has been a visceral critic of the Liberal Party. And he commented that, quote, GDP growth at 1.7% in the year to September is about half of what would be ideal given how much spare capacity there is in the economy and the task ahead for reducing unemployment, uh, boosting wages and lifting back uh, inflation to the RBA's target range. 
And the coup continued, the RBA could help fix this through its own actions. Instead, it has chosen to do nothing and quite oddly entered the political field, effectively telling the government how it should spend and tax areas well outside the remit of the RBA. And he goes on, rather than complain about this political and policy reality, the RBA should incorporate this fiscal tightness into its forecasts and adjust monetary policy to get private sector demand back on track. Uh, the Kook's key conclusion is that it, quote, appears the RBA is floundering around looking for others to blame for its failure to reflate the economy. Uh, and this obviously also comes from a, a former senior Treasury official. Yingers, what do you think? Yeah, Chris, an obviously interesting question is what any additional RBA stimulus might involve. Back in May, we at Coolabar projected a contrarian central case encompassing QE through initially the RBA buying government bonds, which was always going to be its preferred option. In early November, we further alerted our investors and listeners of this podcast to the likelihood that the RBA believed the effective lower bound on its cash rate was 0.25%, not the 0.5% advocated by economists and bank treasurers. We've repeatedly argued that government bond-based QE in Australia is, however, likely to be limited in its effects and risk making the RBA look impotent. Almost every economic analyst on earth agrees, yet this is an intellectually belligerent organisation that is preternaturally incapable of acknowledging that it is wrong. And I say that while recognising it possesses the best economic brains in the business. Phil Lowe and Guy Bell are truly economic rock stars. Assuming the RBA remains recalcitrant, how much money do they need to spend buying government bonds and reducing long-term risk-free rates to get the jobless rate back to its full employment threshold, which Lowe recently hinted could be below 4%? Yeah, Yingers, that's an interesting question, and it's actually one that NAB's economics uh, team has sought to answer, specifically Kieran Davis at NAB, has used the RBA's model of the Australian macro economy to make some educated guesses. And they find that you need to boost GDP growth by about 2.8 percentage points to get the jobless rate down from 5.3% currently to 4.0%, which is comfortably sort of in the narrow range that uh, the RBA has cited. Evidence from overseas markets imply you have to buy government bonds worth 1% of GDP to lift growth by 0.2%. This means the RBA will have to purchase bonds, uh, namely government bonds, worth about 14% of GDP or roughly $266 billion worth to meet its objectives. Now that represents almost one third of the stock of government bonds on issue. For a bunch of complex reasons, this is not likely going to be possible, which brings one back to the conclusion that absent Frydenberg choking in his match against Lowe, Australia's central bank will have to open its mind to a wider range of QE options. One of these options is evolving APRA and the RBA's existing bank liquidity rules to accommodate the RBA's QE initiative and by doing so, uh, indirectly support it. Now, Lowe hinted at this when he said that the RBA would have to consider, quote, the effects of QE on market functioning. And he said, quote, we are conscious that government securities play a crucial role as collateral in some of our financial markets. And he went on, given the limited supply of government debt on issue, 
the RBA and APRA have already had to put in place special liquidity arrangements for the banking system. These considerations are not impediments to undertaking QE, but we would need to take them into account. Now that's really interesting. It basically refers to the fact that banks hold government bonds as part of their liquid assets to protect against crises. Our secondary buffer um, on the liquidity front is the RBA's uh, special quote-unquote committed liquidity facility um, the banks have access to, which is secured by their home loans, uh, by senior bank bonds, and by third-party RMBS. Now, if APRA and the RBA boosted the size of the CLF, to accommodate the RBA's QE program and therefore avoid crowding the banks out of the government bond market, it would have the effect of significantly reducing bank funding costs, enhancing the RBA's monetary policy transmission mechanism. So that's one way as they can kind of stealthily do QE on a broader basis by effectively allowing the banks to do the QE on their behalf through increasing the size of the CLF. Another thing they could do, they probably won't do this, is create some um, a level two liquid assets, so a new ca category of liquid assets that exists overseas but doesn't exist in Australia and one of the main components of level two liquid assets are AAA rated RMBS. Chris now let's turn to Westpac's AML saga. So it's easy to reflexively excoriate individual bank executives for massive AML misses but the truth is that this is a much more nuanced issue that is a systematic industry-wide challenge. The 2001 terrorist attacks which precipitated profound regulatory changes for the payment system that forced the banks mediating it to effectively become law enforcement and counterterrorism agencies. Prior to the introduction of Australia's AML and counterterrorism financing, or otherwise known as the AML or CTF laws, banks simply had to report any transaction over $10,000 to Austrac which is the nation's financial intelligence unit and AML CTF regulator. Yet, after the AML CTF laws came into full effect in 2010, the banks were asked to transform themselves into active intelligence gathering partners, transmitting data on every single offshore funds transfer and filing suspicious matter reports, otherwise known as SMRs, to Austrac on any transaction that the bank's analysis identified as being questionable. This task has been complicated by two factors. First, the bank's notoriously complex legacy mainframe computer systems were never designed with the new mon money laundering and counterterrorism obligations in mind. And second, the advent of the internet and new digital payment methods has multiplied the number of transaction channels banks have to supervise in their law enforcement capacity. Nathan Lynch, head of regulatory intelligence at Thomson Reuters, says that notwithstanding all the hand-wringing, Brian Hartzer really understood these issues and risk management generally. But these are large, complex institutions. They're financial services super tankers, and it's very hard to turn them around. The vast majority of both CBA and Westpac's AML CTF breaches were triggered by technology errors. In CBA's case, a software upgrade to a fancy new ATM network called Intelligence Deposit Machines turned off the automatic Austrac reporting function. This resulted in CBA failing to transmit 53,506 threshold transaction reports. 
CBA further failed to properly assess the AML CTF risks of the new intelligence deposit machines and introduce appropriate controls to mitigate these hazards. That's right, Yingers. And in Westpac's case, it introduced technology in 2010 to automatically report all international fund transfer instructions, or so-called EFTs, to Austract. Now, for some reason, this technology did not, however, work for two of its correspondent banks, with one bank in particular accounting for 99% of the 19.5 million EFTI reports that Westpac failed to file to Austrac, which it did eventually self-report. Westpac's woes would have been much more modest were it not for an explosive reference in Austrac's statement of claim to the bank not doing enough to prevent transactions relating to, quote, potential child exploitation risks, which has been understandably the source of uh, enormous public outrage. Yet here again, the truth is a little more complex. Westpac did in fact have suspicious transaction typologies, as they're known, embedded in the low value payments channel in question, which was called LightPay. Uh, Westpac says, quote, this product was launched with detection monitoring scenarios in August 2016 that were prepared with regard to industry guidance issued by Austrac at the time. The problem is that Austrac updated this guidance uh, on these typologies in December 2016, and it took Westpac 18 months to implement them. Now, while this sort of delay is very, very normal for bank technology upgrades. It obviously should have been implemented immediately. But importantly, Westpac was actually sending Austrac suspicious matter reports or SMRs on all the 12 individuals Austrac says were potentially engaged in child exploitation using Westpac's existing monitoring infrastructure. Sure, the additional uh, topologies would presumably have resulted in even more SMRs being filed. Furthermore, and this wasn't understood, I don't think, widely until a, a few weeks after you know, the revelations were first explosively revealed, Austrac didn't actually advise Westpac that these individuals were suspected pedophiles until the 15th of November 2019, which was five days before it filed its statement of claim, even though Austrac fully briefed Westpac's board on its AML compliance breaches in March that year. And... It is true that in October and September 2019, Austrac requested more information on the 12 clients, but it didn't make any references to child exploitation um, in those uh, uh, requests for more information. Unreported in this uproar uh, has been the fact that Westpac has helped forge an immensely successful joint venture with Austrac. And that's called the Fintel Alliance to identify and prosecute money laundering, terrorism financing, and other serious crime, which has actually stopped many pedophiles. Austrac says the Fintel Alliance is, quote, a world-first public-private partnership, including major banks as well as law enforcement and security agencies from Australia and overseas, that has contributed to the arrest of 108 persons of interest. Nathan Lynch at Thomson Reuters, um, who runs their uh, regulatory intelligence business, says, quote, the Fintel Alliance is admired around the world as best practice when it comes to pioneering real-time intelligence gathering between banks and law enforcement agencies. Banks voluntarily second staff <clears throat> paid for by the bank who are sworn in as public servants. They sit in the same room working alongside government criminal intelligence experts. Now, when we looked at the Fintel Alliance's 2018-2019 annual report, I think uh, we at Coolabar were the first to reveal that it actually uh, helped save or protect 35 children and detain or arrest uh, detain or arrest uh, 73 persons engaged in child exploitation. So yes, whilst 
uh, Westpac was reporting SMRs on the 12 persons of interest um, that it had no idea were engaged in child exploitation and it was only informed of such five days before Austrac filed its statement of claim and it had actually been involved in this JV with Austrac that had um, resulted in the detention of 73 uh, alleged pedophiles and, and saved 35 kids which is obviously a, a pretty good result. The Fintel Alliance has also identified 27 suspects involved in outlaw motorcycle gangs. And here Nathan Lynch comments that, quote, it is the most impressive public-private partnership globally and has resulted in the prosecution of many financial crimes, including numerous child sexual exploitation cases. Uh, all the big four banks are strong supporters of this project, including Westpac. And this is one of the interesting things that um, when you speak to the AML community, you know, Westpac and ANZ are regarded as being very strong on AML. CBA and NAB, not so much. So, you know, obviously the consequences have now hit home and uh, the chairman and CEO are going. And yeah, Chris, this is where the tension arises between perception and reality regarding the bank's contributions to preventing serious crime. In practice, they are essential partners of both Austrac and ASIO in the cybersecurity domain, where they are considered islands of excellence. Westpac alone has more than 750 executives dedicated to thwarting financial crime, which will increase to 950 next year. This is larger than the total staff at most small banks and non-bank institutions. Consumer lender Afterpay, which has 104 staff, revealed recently that between 2015 and 2019, it had not complied with the AML-CTF laws because it had incorrectly relied on legal advice that claimed it provided finance to businesses when it was actually lending to consumers. Every single loan it offered over this period was apparently non-compliant, and yet its share price jumped 10% on the day because its auditor said it is now compliant. Other banks like NAB and Bank of Queensland have also reported similar challenges, ensuring that all aspects of their Byzantine payment systems are compliant. Inside government, there is a sense that most institutions have imperfections, with the one exception being ANZ, as Chris mentioned, which is meant to be outstanding when it comes to AML. This begs the question as to the proportionality of the penalties. If most of the large-scale breaches are being driven by unwitting technological shortfalls and a number of poor executive decisions, one needs to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. CBA's Matt Komen agreed to a $700 million fine to make the matter go away in the midst of a crushing royal commission. And at the time, this was the single biggest AML penalty in the world outside of those levied by US authorities. And Lynch notes also that US regulators tend to find foreign, not domestic, banks. While it is assumed Westpac will have to pay $1 billion or more, this could establish a problematic precedent for smaller rivals. Many non-major banks would face insolvency risk paying a fine of this magnitude, and it would wipe out all the non-banks, for example, Market Darling Afterpay reported a $44 million loss in 2019 and only has $232 million of cash. 
Yeah, I think that's right, Yingyi. And despite having the best public-private financial crime fighting partnership in the world, Australian banks are paying, I think, a broader price for Austrac's record-setting fines in the form of a high cost of capital. We've seen wholesale bank funding costs jump following the latest Austrac news. In particular, Westpac's funding costs rose by as much as 15 basis points in the euro and US dollar markets. This will directly reduce their ability to pass on future rate cuts, especially in an environment in which the big banks' returns on equity have slumped to almost half what they were reporting a few years ago. Finally, Chris, let's talk about a looming revolution for financial advisors. So in one of the biggest shakeups of the financial advice industry in years, the government's Financial Advisor Standards and Ethics Authority, FASIA, appears to have banned conflicted sales commissions, including previously acceptable stamping fees for advisors recommending listed investment funds to retail clients. Many wholesale clients could be captured as well. These conflicted payments were already banned under the 2012 Future of Financial Advice or FOFA laws, which reshaped the financial planning market by ensuring advisors were only ever paid by their clients and not by product manufacturers like fund managers, trying to motivate them to sell their wares to retail and wholesale customers. The presence of sales commissions paid to advisors created endless mis-selling crisis where inappropriate products were foisted on consumers in the name of capturing the associated fees which FOFO brought to an end. The 2019 Royal Commission firmly reinforced FOFO's intent by concluding that, quote, there must be recognition that conflicts of interest and conflicts between duty and interest should be eliminated rather than managed. Yet in 2014, the coalition granted listed investment companies LICs and Listed Investment Trusts, LITs, an exemption from FOFA. In contrast to normal unlisted managed funds and exchange-traded funds, ETFs, this meant that a fundee launching an LIC or LIT could pay unlimited sales commissions to retail advisors promoting their products. This has unsurprisingly led to an explosion in fund managers raising tens of billions of dollars from mums and dads for complex hedge funds and junk bond funds by paying advisors enormous upfront sales commissions of between 1% and 3% of the money that they source from their clients. Under FASIA's new Code of Ethics, which becomes legally binding on all Australian advisors from the 1st of January 2020, this will no longer be possible. Advisors are already talking about how the code will eliminate the gargantuan sales commissions paid by LICs and LITs and force them to compete purely on their merits like all normal investment products that have been bound by the FOFA laws. FASIA's code will also apply to many stockbrokers who these days are more often than not required to be RG146 qualified as a retail advisor. Magellan presently anticipated this development by recently raising $860 million for an LIT that paid no commissions at all to brokers and advisors. Standard 3 of the code says that an advisor, quote, must not advise, refer or act in any other manner where you have a conflict of interest or duty. It then provides specific case studies under a guidance note of what represents an illegal breach. Yeah, that's right. And the devil is in the detail. Um, the code is written in a very, very tough, legally binding format. 
and the guidance provides uh, examples of how it will be applied. One of those examples involves an advisor's firm taking advantage of, quote, the carve-out from the conflicted REM provisions introduced by the FOFA reforms for stockbroking fees. <clears throat> the code, or sorry, the guidance then says that where an advisor recommends a product to earn extra stock stockbroking commissions, they actually breach the standard and can't um, therefore do so. Another case study explicitly deals with the stamping fees advisors capture, capture from uh, IPOs of LICs and LITs. And the guidance states that an advisor, quote, keeping the stamping fee rather than rebating it is unfair to their client. And this is the guidance note continuing, and I'll quote from it. The option to keep the stamping fee creates a conflict between the advisor's interest in receiving the fee and his client's interest. Standard 3 requires the advisor to avoid the conflict of interest. It is not sufficient for him to decline the benefit as it may be retained by his principal. Either the firm must decline the stamping fee altogether or the advisor must rebate it in full to his clients. So the ban on stamping fees for LICs and LITs for all advisors is therefore black and white. Some advisors have speculated that FASI's code might only apply to retail, not wholesale clients, thereby allowing them to still capture conflicted sales commissions when recommending products to wholesale customers. So uh, under the Corpus Act, an individual can be classified as a wholesale client if the advisor can obtain an accountant's certificate showing they have net assets of at least 2.5 million or a gross income for the last two years of at least 250K per annum. Um, the problem is that many individuals who earn 250K a year or have a home worth more than two and a half mil know absolutely nothing about finance, investing or markets. This includes obviously scores of retirees who have seen their homes appreciate beyond two and a half mil. Standard one of the code says advisors, quote, must act in accordance with all applicable laws, including this code, which is the law, and not try to avoid or circumvent their intent. The guidance note then provides a direct case study study covering a client who technically qualifies as a wholesale investor because they have a $3.4 million home. They're being serviced by an advisor who is also their stockbroker, who recommends a listed investment company that they buy it, um, and that company then falls 25% in value. The client, the guidance note says, relied on the advisor's recommendation and seeks to sue them for compensation covering their losses in the listed investment. The advisor counters that he did not prepare a statement of advice, nor does his advice need to comply with the best interest duty of the code of ethics because their client qualified as a wholesale, not retail investor. And the guidance note clarifies that the advisor still breaches standard one by treating the client as a wholesale investor and relying on the accounting certificate because he ignores um, the client's lack of competence in financial matters. And here I'll quote uh, from the guidance note, whilst technically the assets test permits the advisor to to attribute the same jointly held asset to both the husband and wife, the advisor has failed to act ethically. As he is a person authorized to provide personal advice to retail clients, he is bound by the code. He has tried to circumvent the intent of the laws designed to protect investors like the client who may lack competency in financial matters. Just more generally on the question of whether conflicted remuneration impacts advice, the guidance note um, offers a key legal test, and that is whether a disinterested person in possession of all the facts could reasonably, or sorry, might reasonably conclude that the form of variable income, be it brokerage fees, asset-based fees, or commissions, can induce an advisor to act in a manner inconsistent with the best interests of the client or other provisions of the code. So, you know, what does all of this mean? Um, it seems to mean that it'll be very, very hard to sell LICs and LITs to retail investors. I think the more 
uh, or the broader consequence is that many advisors won't simply be able to hide behind the definition of a wholesale client either because they'll have to make a determination about the financial sophistication of that client. You know, we have many clients who are worth tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars that they've made in uh, industries far removed from finance and who know nothing about finance or markets. And so I think the risk for advisors is if they have a wealthy client who technically is wholesale, but who is not financially competent, um, who doesn't have the wherewithal to understand, you know, three, four times levered hedge funds or levered junk bond funds, the risk is um, they're the sorts of clients that could take action and, and sue for compensation as um, the guidance note um, pertaining to the code explains where the advisor recommends a listed investment, it falls in value 25%, and now the wholesale, wholesale client is suing for loss, um, notwithstanding uh, they are technically wholesale, but the code extends way beyond the wholesale definition in the Corpse Act, and it has a you know, financial competency requirement. Fellas, that's it. Thank you for listening. Really appreciate your time. I know everyone's busy. Have a great break. Thank you for your support of us. Um, And hopefully the podcast has uh, served some educational purpose. Um, It actually was ironically designed for wholesale clients, uh, actually actually mainly institutional clients. We thought when we uh, created the podcast that um, the maximum global audience would be about 500 portfolio managers around the world working in fixed income. But for some reason, we managed to be uh, capturing north of 1,200 downloads per episode. So I really appreciate um, your time. Reach out to me at any time if you want to communicate. My email address is christopher.joy J-O-Y-E at coolabarcapital.com. Otherwise, you can go to our website, uh, which is coolabarcapital.com, and please listen to the disclaimer. Thank you. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product, and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.